I look on the, your the outline. I provided the whole text for you there this morning, and I've uh, been doing that, that lately. I know a lot of people don't always have their Bibles, and that, that will help us to be able to follow along. We are continuing our series in Hebrews, and the part that we've been looking at recently, starting with uh, chapter 8, where you know just that section that we're in now that goes to the middle of chapter 10, does not fall into a kind of structure that, that preachers like. <laughs> we like to have a nice structure where you can divide it up and preach on this and then this and then this kind of thing. To add to the difficulty, it contains a lot of material that's, uh, that's difficult and hard to understand, but also material that's important. One commentator I read recently suggested that it was like a, a musical piece that you know, where they'll have it and they'll kind of present it in, in one way and then they'll take the same themes and they'll present them again with a little different coloring and then they'll present it again with a little... And it has three sort of presentations of basically three different elements about, re, related to Christ and his uh, saving work for us. And it sort of plays with those and presents them over and over again. And, you know, I look at the different commentators and they all have the different structures for their outlines and trying to trying to figure out um, how to kind of bring this together in, a, in an outline way. Uh, one thing is clear, though. The author of Hebrews weaves into the tapestry of this particular section three threads of comparison between the old arrangement under Moses and the arrangement that we have now in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And when he talks about the first covenant, in this section in the Old Testament, he's talking to us particularly about that which was given to them at Sinai, when they, what Moses gave to them, and comparing that to the New Covenant. The threads that are weaved through include the three threads. There's three threads that are weaved through and looked at in all different ways. Sometimes one is emphasized, sometimes the other are the better covenant and the better sanctuary and the better sacrifice. Okay, All of those are better in Christ, who is better, as our high priest. Now, I've chosen to present this material by looking, as we did already, at, at chapter 8, verse 1 through 6, is the introduction to this section and sort of a transition and bridge from what went before, where Christ was presented as the, the excellent priest that is like no other who has came after the order of Melchizedek, who has no beginning and no end. He's an eternal one who became flesh and then became a priest for us and offered the sacrifice that we needed, who's uniquely not only a priest but also a king. And uh, all of these things are, are unique about him. Had three chapters there, chapter 5 through 7, told that he is a priest who has all that we need for salvation. So we looked at that quite some time ago. Uh, then in that introductory part that I was just talking about, we, we introduced this section that we're in now. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 6, we're introduced to the idea of what I just mentioned, those three threads, that he has a, a better sanctuary and a, a better sacrifice and a better covenant. And then uh, these things are treated in more detail, in overlapping detail, from 8, 7 to 10, 18. So first, as we, as we have, as, as I've divided it up here, and again, it could be done in different ways, but in 8, 7 through 13, it does focus there on the better covenant as it relates to the better sacrifice and the better sanctuary. 
So it always talks about all three of the things, but it's sort of emphasizing the covenant on that part. So that's what we looked at that week. It has better promises. Uh, it really accomplishes things. Then last week, we looked at the better sanctuary, okay, as it is represented in chapter 9, verse 1 through 14. And we saw that the tabernacle that was made with hands that Moses appointed, where they you know, made curtains and posts and all, all these different things and put them together as God had told them, animal skins and whatever, to, to make that, that tabernacle. And then later, when God moved, in, when the people were brought to peace in the land, then he established a house among them that this is replaced with the spiritual reality of the people of God as the sanctuary connected to God. And so we have to stretch our minds because we're going from something that is a material representation of things that are spiritual. And of course, it's not that spiritual means that there's nothing physical there. There's a real death and a real mediator who comes in flesh. But what he accomplishes for us doesn't bring about a relationship with God where we go into a building and connect with him. But it brings about what those buildings represent. It brings about a relationship with God that is represented by what is shown in that Old Testament sanctuary. So it's a better sanctuary because it's through Christ, real communion and relationship with God is established. And there's a lot of ways that we looked at last week of how it's better. I can't, can't get into all of that now. But um, we're, Christ is the foundation of the temple, and we're living stones, and we're indwelt by God. We're a habitation for him, and it's a, a living temple, and Christ is the priest who reconciles us to the Father, who brings the sacrifice that is needed and fulfills the, the covenant promises that were made by the Father that, that are brought to, to us for blessing. Now, this week we're going to focus on the third of those threads, and that is the, the better sacrifice. And we're not going to even finish looking at the sacrifice this week, but we're going to cover a pretty large chunk from uh, 9-11 to 10-4. Now, you see there's some overlap there, and I told you that last week, that we would overlap with the last part of what we looked at last week, and next week we'll be overlapping again with what is the last part this week because these things are so intricately tied together. But we're going to look at them with a focus this week on the better sacrifice that Christ has. Next week, we'll plan to look at Christ's own testimony about the better sacrifice. And after that, at the Holy Spirit's testimony about the better sacrifice and what it achieves. Now, if you got lost with all that, just suffice it to say, Today we're looking at how Christ sacrificed for sin is better than all the sacrifices that they had in the Old Testament. That's a pretty obvious thing, but we're going to look at how that is so. So now I'll read the passage to you starting in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. And remember, this is the word of God, so receive it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, 
But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the, the copies of these things in, hev in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. For now the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, Make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But, if those sacrifice, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Thanks be to God for his precious word. We need a priest. Overall thing here. We need a priest because we're sinners. We need a priest to offer sacrifices to make us right with God so that we can be God's people, so that we can know him and serve him. We can have the forgiveness of all of our sins. We cannot make ourselves right with God by anything that we do. That's the bottom line. Through the law of Moses, God taught us that a substitutionary death, okay, Someone dying in our place, substitutionary death, is required to take away our sin and guilt. We have seen that the tabernacle, or later the temple, was given to us as God's people at that time to show us heavenly realities. They were a visual representation of God dwelling with his people. They had their tents. God has his tents among them. 
They had their houses in the land. God had his house, the temple, among them. And again, this is a visual representation of God dwelling with his people, which actually is something that cannot be seen. Because God doesn't have a body like we do, and we're connected with him spiritually. So it was taken and shown in a visible way, God's house is with you. God dwells with you. His tent is with you. To put it plainly, God pitched his tent among their tent, showed that sin made it so that they could not approach him, so that they had to have sacrifices and offerings and washings and all sorts of things because of their sin. But he gave them ceremonies to show them that he was going to deal with that sin problem. And not not with the blood of bulls and goats. Those were just symbols, emblems, to show how that connection with him would truly be established by the son that he promised. The great problem that was depicted was sin. Because of our sin and guilt, he showed us that we needed a perfect priest to offer sacrifice. So the priest had to have all sorts of washings and things to make him like, okay, he's, he's not perfect, but we're going to take this guy to represent that. So we're going to wash him up and we're going to give him all these ceremonies and sacrifices and things like that. And then he's going to be the one who goes and offers a sacrifice to atone for our sin. Without that, we could not come to God, nor would we be able to dwell with God as our God. So it shows us realities about God that are eternal realities, like these, these ceremonies and sacrifices. They're not useless. They're very worthwhile for us today to understand, not to engage in anymore, but to understand what is depicted, what it, it depicts what is invisible to us. God is holy, and he will never tolerate sin and rebellion. To do so would be to deny himself. To atone for sin, then, animals were sacrificed in place of the worshipers. The animal died in place of the worshiper dying. God was showing that we must have someone to die for us. God gave them all sorts of baptisms and washings and sacrifices for sin, and he appointed men to serve as these priests. This shows us what was needed. A lot was needed in order for us to be God's people because we're not fit to be his people. We're full of sin and corruption. If he did not provide what we need, He did not provide what we needed in those offerings of the Old Testament. They were just copies to show us what we actually need and what he would provide. We needed a sacrifice to be punished in our place. The copies showed that we needed someone suitable to die in our place. Now, until Christ came, the question stood before God's people. Where... Can a holy priest with a sacrifice that is able to satisfy for our sins, to represent us and to satisfy, where could that be found? How can God provide that? He's God, but how in the world is he going to provide? He promised that he would provide that sacrifice. He spoke of a son who would be born to us in those times. He spoke of it. And through whom deliverance would come. Deliverance from Satan, our our enemy who led us into rebellion. And blessing would come through the Son to all of the nations. How would this be? 
how could God, what could a son do? How could God provide such a son that would provide atonement to take away our sins? How would that be? Hebrews shows us and declares to us how marvelously God has provided. So much more marvelously than we could have ever dreamed. We could have never thought this up. It's remarkable how God provided what he showed us we needed all of those years. Jesus Christ is the priest. And the marvel of marvels, he is the sacrifice. Who would have ever thought that? They could hardly even accept that. When, when Jesus came, the Jews, no, the Messiah, he, he, he's supposed to live forever. He can't go and die on the cross. That's not what he's supposed to do. His blood is shed to provide that atonement that those animals were used to represent in the Old Testament. Tabernacle, the, 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 what we needed. Look at verse 11 and 12. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. That's talking about the things now in the context of like when he came, the things that he brought to us that we have now with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Okay, so this is a tabernacle. Again, this is the real thing, the, the relationship. It's not a building anymore. It's not some place. It's a relationship with a perfect tabernacle, a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Who would have ever thought that the sacrifice would be God's son? God, the son, shedding his blood. He doesn't even have blood in his eternal nature. Shedding his blood to atone for our sins. It's, it's an inconceivable thing. You, cheap illustration here. You're in the desert without water, and the Lord sends you a palace with lakes and stewards and servants to, to run everything and gardens and all of these things. And you say, I just, I, I need it. All I knew is I was dying of thirst. And God, he's provided this huge fountain of a palace with 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 more than I could have ever dreamed that he would provide and that and in our case you see it's more than we even realized was really needed because we don't think sin is as big a problem as it really is we don't realize that we're we're dying you know, you realize that when you're dying of thirst you know you need something and the provision that God made is just astounding it, it goes so much beyond even just barely what we need God has brought that to us. In verse 13 and 14, we're given a how much more argument. Look what it says. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. In other words, if, if those animal sacrifices were adequate with the copies. Okay, what do we do with the copy here so that we can keep on serving God? And representing him here in the world as his people. That was what they would ask in those days. Okay, God says you got to offer these sacrifices. They would offer the sacrifices. God would say, okay, good, you did it. That's what you're supposed to do. And they would keep doing that. And they maintained this, this copy thing that was going on until Christ came. With the promise that God was going to provide the real thing that they needed. 
So they had the copies that whole time going on. So it says if the blood of bulls and goats worked in that situation, if they were adequate for the copy, then it says how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If those animals work for the copy that showed what we need in the copy, how much more does the Son of God from heaven accomplish what needs to be done to cleanse us from our sins? God testified that he would accept a substitute in those Old Testament ceremonies. He let us know that all those years and showed that he would provide that. How much then, when we see what he provided, wow, I tell you that, is that adequate? (laughs) Absolutely it's adequate. There's no question that if animals were good enough to purify sin in the model, Christ is good enough to do it in reality. With the model, God showed us that someone must die, making us ask who could do such a thing. And he answered that by sending his only begotten son. We were left to wonder how God could come up with an adequate sacrifice. He's shown us now. Christ has come. When we see that the Son of God became flesh in order that he might represent us and be offered as that sacrifice, who could have ever thought of such a thing? God has gone above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. Look at how he is described here, this, this one, this son that God gave to us. It says that he offered up his blood to God through the eternal spirit. God's own son shed his blood as the Lamb of God. Unbelievably wonderful. We've seen that. There, there, but what about this thing through the eternal spirit? There's some debate about what that means. But I think the idea here is that unlike the animals, he offered himself for our sins as an act of his spirit. And by that, I don't mean the Holy Spirit per se, but his divine will. Okay, animals, of course, were offered as a sacrifice to atone for sin. When they were, they had no awareness that they were a sacrifice for sin because they were just a picture of it. They, they, they were stupid. They didn't know what was going on when that was done. It was just for, it was a picture. They did not offer themselves. The animal did not come and say, I'd really like to help these people with their sins. I'm, I'll, I'll give myself as a sacrifice. They, they, they were not conscious of what was going on. They didn't offer themselves. And you see, it was obvious that the one who would actually be that sacrifice would have to be like us. He would have to be someone that would would offer himself, would know what was going on, would bear the sin and the, the, the punishment, the shame of our sin, and all of these things. He had, to, he had to be one that was aware of what was going on. And Jesus says in John 10, My Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. So it's a willing offering of his eternal spirit. The divine person, when he came here, he was sent here. He came to do that before he even became flesh. He had determined, I'm, I'll go and do this according to my father's good pleasure. And then he came 
and he, he became flesh. Now he has a human spirit as well as a divine spirit, a divine will and all these things. And, and together, you see, the, the, the whole person offers himself, gives himself for us. That's what is required. And as Jesus is both God and man, then he gave himself in, in this way. Note that he is said to have offered himself without spot to God. That was another problem, wasn't it? Who could be this one that would be offered as a sacrifice for sin? Because the animal sacrifices, they had to be without blemish. Of course, that was just outside, right? Their bodies or whatever, they can have blemishes or legs that were messed up or, or that sort of thing. To picture, though, that the one had to be without sin. And that was all shown very clearly in the Old Testament. So he's the only one that is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sin, as we saw earlier when we learned about him coming as a priest. We won't go into all the details of that. What is the outcome of this offering, of such an offering as God has provided? What, what does it do? We're told that it is able to cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's what it says at the end of verse 14. The whole verse reads, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This speaks of the wonderful change that comes whenever a sinner trusts in Jesus and realizes how adequate Jesus' sacrifice really is. I mean, when you come to grips with that, like the Son of God's blood was shed to take away my sin, that's so much. It's, it's, it's enough. We're freed from guilt. We don't, we don't, we don't walk around with our, our head down guilty and beat down because we have an offering. We have a priest Christ, who offers a sacrifice. Christ himself offers himself to take away our sins. God was angry with us, but his anger is turned away. And he comforts us. Now we can walk with him in happy communion and fellowship, serving, the, serving God. Now instead of avoiding God because we're guilty and we don't want to face him, we love him for saving us. Instead of offering up service, works, to try to justify ourselves in his sight. Oh, I'm going to have to do something to make, I did something bad, I'll have to go do, you know, that, that kind of thing. We can serve him as those who are fully pardoned and accepted and filled with gratitude. No one can serve God but in pretense until that person has been pardoned. We simply cannot face the living God until our sins are cleansed we cannot possibly walk in harmony with him because our consciences are defiled. We know that we're unfit to be with him. If we think we can face him before that, some people say, oh, I, I can face God without having an atonement for my sins because I think God is a loving God. And, blah, 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 and they go into all this. That's an idol. That's not the real God. They don't really have a cleansed conscience. They have a defiled conscience. They have a conscience that's dead, that's not connected with reality. When we know the real and true God, then we can be, our conscience is set free when we come to trust in this true saving work of Jesus Christ. There's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. So anyone that thinks everything's okay between them and God is not resting in the shedding of Christ's blood, the remission of sins, they're deluded. They're, they're, they're wrong. Oh, I did all these good things. My, my good outweighs my bad. Whatever they're saying. 
It's, it's ridiculous. It does not work. When we have our purified conscience, then our conscience is not avoided and set aside, you see, but it's set free because Christ died. Okay, so that's the first outcome of receiving Christ's offering to take away our sins. Second, we're told that this sacrifice provides complete redemption for us. Look at verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Redemption refers to the payment of the penalty for our sins. We owed God a great debt by transgressing or breaking his law. We actually created a situation. Okay, when, when the human race rebelled against God and fell into sin, we created a situation that had to be put right. It could not be left unaddressed. The situation that we created, we came short in giving God the honor that belongs to him. And that breach of honor, that lack of honor that is due to God, has to be made up. It has to be made up somehow. For his honor to be restored, we must be punished according to what we did in violating the honor of God. And because he is God, then we must be punished very, very severely. Things must be put right again. Justice demands that. We have a penalty. We have a debt that we have to pay. Jesus paid the debt when he redeemed us. He paid the debt that we owe. He bore the full penalty so that God could restore us completely and at the same time restore his honor. In other words, God by Christ as a substitute made up that breach so that we could then be accepted of God without God being dishonored. It would have dishonored him to accept us without Christ making up that breach. I don't think for a moment that God is being selfish here. God is God. He is pure and holy. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. He is maintaining what is just and right. There could be no paradise if God let his honor be diminished without addressing it. Everything would be out of kilter. What's more, because he is God and he is just, it is not even an option for him to leave it unaddressed. Because he is just, he is holy, he is pure. Now this is a good time to consider if you are redeemed by Christ. The way you can know that you have been redeemed is if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who paid the debt of your sins. Are you looking to him to make up that breach? The first covenant had nothing to pay the debt. It had pictures of things that would pay the debt. And so the people looking to those said, God's going to provide the debt for the debt. I don't know how he's going to do this, but he's going to provide. And so they had faith in the same, same as we do in a way, except we get to see how he provided it. We, we're, we're at a great advantage. So, so we, get to, we get to see that. But unless you, unless you see that, then you, you don't have redemption. Redemption by Christ's death provides full payment for your sins. And now we come to the third uh, outcome that is promised to us here. We're told that Christ, our mediator, enables us to receive 
the everlasting inheritance that God promises. Look at the end of verse 15. I'll read the whole verse. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For redemption of for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The gracious purpose of God in sending his son and of his son in coming is that we may receive the eternal inheritance. This is the reason that God saves us so that we can inherit all things. Indeed, we're told that we will inherit the earth. He wants us to be in his house with him. That's why he did all of this. We're going to inherit the earth as our home. He told us that we will inherit glory with him and with his father. He told us that we will live with him forever in his father's house. He said that we will inherit eternal life, that we would have a renewed, resurrected body. Our bodies would be resurrected and made immortal. We will inherit his kingdom. Here you are, consigned without Christ, consigned to the lake of fire because of a debt of sin that you cannot pay. And he sends his only son to pay that debt. But he also provides you with an everlasting kingdom. He gives you so much more. He could have just barely covered the debt for you and kind of left you in a place where you didn't really have a lot. But he gives you an everlasting kingdom of glory with him. That's the reason he does this, because he wants fellowship with us. Your God makes you into his temple in which he dwells forever and ever. You are living stones in his temple with Jesus Christ. What tremendous blessings then belong to the church, the people that God has redeemed to make his own people forever. A conscience set free by enabling you to serve God Redemption by Christ's death that provides full payment for all of your sins. And this third outcome, an everlasting inheritance and glory. What tremendous blessings belong to the church, the people that God has redeemed to make his own forever. But when did these benefits actually become ours? When did they become the possession of the churches, of the church? These benefits became ours as soon as Christ died. That's when the church officially received the possession of these blessings. The saints of old could benefit from them as that which was coming to them, knowing that God would provide. Just like if you have an inheritance from a you know, wealthy family or whatever, you, you can receive benefits from that wealth before, and you know that that's coming to you, and you can even make decisions based on the inheritance and, and whatnot that is coming. That God, They knew that God was provide. But there are part, there are also, we should understand, parts of the blessing that are held in trust, even now for us, until the return of Christ. Sometimes you receive an inheritance like a little child, and they won't have access to all of it. It's held in trust, and it's dispensed to them over time is appropriate, is determined by the father or the one that made the, the, the will. So, so this is... Uh, this is how it works. If we're among those who are baptized and trust in Christ, though, this is the possession of the church. Like what Christ has done for us is ours. The benefits are ours as his people. It works the same way that it, I, was, I was just referring to it, a last will and testament works. That's what it's, scripture uses that as an illustration here. 
If your parents write out a will and they promise to give you all or a portion of their estate, the things that they own, but you, you don't officially get any of those things until they die. It's a legal arrangement. When you don't obtain, you don't obtain the title to their property until they die, and then the title is transferred to you. Now look at verse 16 and 17. It says, for where there is a testament, like a last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. He can't claim anything until after. So our Lord had made it clear to us that cleansing doesn't occur until there's actual death. There has to be actual shedding of blood, not just theoretical. It has to actually happen. A sufficient sacrifice has to come. The Old Testament ceremony showed us this. Pretty much everything it says was cleansed only after blood was shed. The blood was sprinkled on the things that were cleansed to show that death cleansed you, right? Blood representing death, blood poured out, sprinkled to cleanse along with water and kind of a soap mixture that they had that with animal parts and things, uh, cleansed by death by shedding of blood. This is basically what is taught in verse 18 to 22. We don't need to spend a lot of time on these verses. They are simply showing that with God, death releases this cleansing. Death procures this cleansing. When he, when he died, the cleansing came. Okay? Listen to what it says. Therefore, not even the first covenant, okay, again, talking about Moses, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. Keep in mind that the tabernacle represents the temple made up of people of living stones. Don't forget that. That's the reason atonement was made for the tabernacle as well as the people. The tabernacle itself was cleansed. The passage goes on. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So remember, these Old Testament copies teach us of New Testament realities. They use earthly symbols to present heavenly realities and to show how spiritual cleansing from sin takes place. And what is the lesson in this? It is that if the copies had to be cleansed by the death of an animal, a much greater death was needed for the cleansing before, true cleansing before God. Look at verse 23. And see, this is kind of a repetition, right, of what we saw before. That's why we're not dwelling on it for a long time. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. The copies were purified with these, this sprinkling of blood and, and water and all that. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. But of course, you know now what the better sacrifice is. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The new, under the new covenant. Verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ's death actually cleanses us so that we can have communion with God and serve him and walk with him. The blessing of cleansing was released when? When he died. He could not just die theoretically. He had to die to procure the blessing. 
The Lord wants you to know. What do we what do we do this with this? The Lord wants you to know for certain that Christ's work is complete. The provision has been made and delivered to the church. Christ only had to suffer. He only had to offer his sacrifice once. Unlike the priests of old. They had to do it over and over again. Why? Why did they do it over and over? It's because when Christ died, the blessing of eternal cleansing was obtained for the church. His death was the act that produced that cleansing. Once it was obtained, once it was cleansed, it was obtained. It was forever purified. Christ does not need to keep on procuring the same thing again. Because it has been procured. If you rescue someone from death, you don't have to rescue them again from death and again from death. They're alive now. Christ does not need to keep on procuring the same thing. Certainly there are those who he has not yet called and they need this sacrifice of Christ. They need to come and trust in him. And they will if they're his elect people. They'll come and trust in him and receive the blessing and the benefit. His death is sufficient, though, forever. It doesn't have to be done again. Every time another sinner comes, he has done it for his church forever. It's settled. It's finished. It's complete. And that's the great blessing that we have. We don't have to go offer more sacrifices now. Let's take a quick walk through these verses. Hebrews 9.25 to 10.4. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That would be terrible if Jesus, every time he, we sin, he has to go and offer another sacrifice. He has to go suffer again. He, but now he says, once at the end of the ages, and I've told you before, the way the Jews spoke of the end of the ages was the time we're in now, when Christ came. Okay, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. When he died, he was judged as our mediator, and he was accepted as such. He does not need to be accepted again and again. He has already done what is required, and it has already been accepted. Continuing on in the middle of verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin, for salvation. And that's when all the blessings will be fully dispensed to us. We have them now. The church has them. And they will be fully dispensed when the Father's time comes. The author goes on in, in chapter 10 to argue that if the Old Testament sacrifices had actually taken away sin. Once they did, they would never have to be done again, would they? Why would you keep cleansing something when it was already clean? But they didn't really make it clean. They were just pictures. So they were done over and over again. He says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they would they not have ceased to be offered? The answer, of course, yeah, they would have been they wouldn't have been offered anymore for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. And in the, there's that conscience thing again. And in those sacrifices, there is a, remain, a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So you see, this has rich application if you're a Christian, doesn't it? 
Jesus' blood will never lose its power to cleanse. It's always there to cleanse you from your sin. You don't need a priest to offer him up again for you. He's already done it. It's already been received. He is the priest and his offering is quite sufficient forever and ever. Nor do you need to come up with some way of making atonement for your sin. You can't do that. Christ was appointed to do that. Christ came because you can't. It is for you, dear Christian, to trust in his saving work and rest in it. Certainly, if you're sinning, you need to repent. I'm not saying you just say, oh, I'm cleansed. No, yeah, you, you need to repent and, and, and come back to your father. But the foundation of your cleansing is not to be found anywhere. But in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, it, was, it became an accomplished reality when he died. We're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The Son of God has shed his blood. It is enough. So you see how the copies of the old covenant show us by ceremonies what needed to be done. They are an essential part of God's revelation to us, showing what he requires and accept and that he he requires and accepts the death of a substitute for sin. When we understand what God actually provided, then we have great consolation and encouragement. Please stand and let's give thanks. Our gracious Father in heaven, you have provided for us so richly and so abundantly through our Lord Jesus Christ. All those Old Testament shadows were were laid out for all those years showing these sacrifices that were offered again and again because they were just they were just copies. It was just a copy of sin being removed. It was just animals. And you know that was that was clear, that was evident. And you'd promised that you would provide the sacrifice, that you would provide the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. And we thank you, O Lord, that in the fullness of time that you did so. Here we are now, Lord. We're here before you asking you, O Lord, to to be merciful to us on the basis of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for his church. We pray, O Lord, that we would receive the remission of sin through faith in him. We come, O Lord, looking to you to, to cleanse us from all of our sin and indeed thanking you that you have cleansed us and that if we believe, then we have a share in that great inheritance of your people. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of of one day inheriting the earth and of a resurrection unto to glory. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to, to, to rejoice as we anticipate that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to have a conscience that is, is burdened and loaded down with guilt, but we would come to our Lord and we would recognize what he has done and we would rest in him. We would ask for that cleansing and forgiveness to be applied to us that has been already provided and given. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fall into the the trap of thinking that we have to keep offering sacrifices to you or that we even have to offer Christ up again to you again and again and again. It is finished. It is done. It is settled. And we pray that we would enter into that, that settledness, Lord, and that we would serve you as a people set free. Oh, liberate us, Lord. Give us that assurance that will bring joy and obedience to you, that will bring glad service to you, that will bring love to you, that will bring love to each other. We, we know, Lord, that we're still 
quite far from the mark to which you have called us. But we also know that there is cleansing for our sin. We also know, Lord, that you are working in us. We also know that you've promised that the day will come when we will see you and we will be like you because we'll see you as you are and everything will be brought to perfection. We thank you that our hope is not in ourselves because if it was, we would be most, we would have much reason to despair. We see the, the mess that the world is in, but we know, O oh Lord, that you are the redeemer and we believe that you will fulfill your promises and establish your righteous kingdom forever and ever. It is our hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that we would know this and we would be settled in it. I also want to pray this morning, O oh Lord, that you would be with, with each one according to their particular needs. And, and we do pray for, the, um, for, for Daniel and Linnea this morning, too, as they're uh, going away from us. We pray, Father, that you would bless them in their endeavors. As they, we thank you so much for the fellowship that we have had with them. Uh, Daniel over many years and Lene over these last couple of years. And we pray, Father, that you have blessed them in their endeavors as they, as they go. And uh, help them, Lord, to, to honor you and to walk with you. And to bring forth much fruit for you. And we pray that you would provide for them according to their needs. We, we ask, Lord, that you would now be with us and visit us as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We thank you for the bond of fellowship that we enjoy with each other and with Christ around this table. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and, the Lord, and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.